want a second person? Good evening, brothers and sisters. Good to meet on this Lord's Day evening, this Easter evening, and close out the day with worship together. Let's stand as God himself calls us to worship him with his word. These words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Amen. Praise the Lord. Our opening hymn is Worship Christ the Risen Kings, 286. Christ has conquered death and hell. Sing as all the earth rejoices, resurrection anthems swell. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the risen King. See the tomb where death had laid him, Empty now its mouth declares Death and I could not contain him For the throne of life he shares Come and worship, come and worship Worship Christ the risen King Hear the earth protest and tremble See the stone removed with power. All hell's minions may assemble, but cannot withstand his hour. Has conquered, he has conquered, Christ the Lord, the risen King. Doubt may lift its head to murmur, Scoffers mock and sinners jeer, but the truth proclaims a wonder, thoughtful hearts receive with cheer. He is risen, he is risen, now receive the risen King. We acclaim your life, O Jesus, now we sing your victory. Sin or hell may seek to seize us, but your conquest keeps us free. Stand in triumph, stand in triumph, worship Christ the risen King. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God and our King, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who ever lives now in your presence, the right hand of your throne, reigning over everything as our King and our Redeemer. Thank you for all the wonderful grace you've shown us in him and the blessings you've poured out on us in him. That we're forgiven that we're accepted before you, 
that we are adopted as your sons and daughters, brought into your family and made part of uh, uh, co-heirs with Christ with an eternal inheritance ahead of us, even resurrection life, as our Lord Jesus Christ has won for us. We thank you for this. We thank you as we come to the close of this Easter Lord's Day, remembering this day so long ago when Christ was risen from the dead. Thank you that he still lives. And we have the wonderful hope that one day the eternal Sabbath rest will begin. And we'll join him in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever, in glorious peace and rest with all the church. Until then, O oh Lord, we thank you for these Sabbath days, which punctuate our lives, feeding us on this pilgrim journey heavenward, strengthening us and nourishing us by your word. So please, we pray, strengthen us and and give us your grace once again and show us your goodness once again and build us up in Christ our King. It's in his name we hope. Amen. Please remain standing. We're going to sing another. This is a setting of Psalm 16. It's not in the hymnal, but the tune should be familiar. Preserve me, O my God.
At my right hand he goes from ill, and I shall not be moved. My heart is therefore glad, my tongue with joy will sing, my body too will rest secure in hope unwavering. For you will not forsake my soul unto the grave, nor will you leave your Holy One to see the tombs decay. Life's pathway you make known, for joy of boundless store is found with you at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Amen. Please be seated. It's always especially sweet to sing the very words of Scripture, uh, the words of the Psalms, which God's people have been singing for so many years. And that psalm in particular speaks wonderfully about our eternal hope, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, prophesying that, and also comforting us with the hope of our resurrection in Him. Precious truth. We have a chance now, a high privilege, to come to the throne of grace together. Do you have any prayer requests or praises you'd like to share as we do so? Yes, Donna. Other requests. All right, let's go to the Lord together. Lord, indeed, it is a high privilege, one that cost your son his life for us to draw near to you. We're sinners, and you are holy, and we have no right or place before you, and we should expect nothing of you except condemnation and judgment. Because of our sin and because you're a just judge, you can't just overlook our sin, arbitrarily show us mercy, much less give us your ear that we might speak to you and make the requests and concerns of our lives known to you and that you would hear them and that you would even surround us with these glorious promises in your word that you'll do everything we ask for Christ's sake. Indeed, more than we can ask or even imagine. Help us not to count this a little thing, that you listen to us, that you, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, the one who knit us together and holds all things together and sustains all things by the word of your power, that you hear us and that you command us to come to you and you delight to hear us. Even as a father delights to see his children run to him, you delight to have us run to you. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this. Thank you that we have your ear in your Son. Lord, we would give thanks to you tonight 
that we are your sons in our Lord Jesus Christ. That you have placed your name on us and taken us out of our sin and out of our uh, slavery to it and our, uh, our existence under the shadow and curse of death. And you've made us your sons, given us such a wonderful uh, place in your family that we belong now with you and your name is on us. And we're part of your covenant people forever. Thank you for this grace you've shown us. And thank you that you pour out your spirit in our hearts as your sons so that we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. That the instinct of our hearts is the instinct of a child now running to a father who's gracious, ready to hear and ready to save. We thank you for your spirit in us. Thank you that he is always at work in our hearts and lives. Um, and thank you that his work is such a good and gracious work as he patiently uh, remakes us in your image, even according to the image of Christ, your son. Thank you that he gives us a new life and, and power to overcome sin and to walk in faithfulness to all your commandments. We pray that we would grow in treasuring these things and relying on your spirit and walking in step with your spirit as sons of the living God should. We pray that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be rich in that fruit. And that as, that as the Spirit does His good work of giving us communion with our Savior, that we would bear much fruit as we abide in Christ. Thank you also for the inheritance we have as sons. Thank you that this sweet inheritance ahead of us is sure and certain that our resurrection, that our, that our life with you in glory forever in the kingdom is certain because of Christ. Thank you that we have the down payment of this already in your spirit, that, that you have guaranteed to us that we will come into your kingdom and we will reign there with Christ forever. Thank you. How shall we respond to what you've done and the wonderful works that you've wrought? We would offer up our whole selves in obedience, with gratitude, eternal gratitude. We owe you everything. We pray that you make us more thankful. We pray you make us more obedient and more faithful. Father, we pray for our church. Thank you that your hand is on our church to guide her and bless her and shepherd her and pastor her. We thank you that you are the one who sustains us by your grace. We pray you continue your work here among us that you would be reshaping all of us into the image of Christ and, and giving us the priorities that he has, that we would seek first not our own little kingdoms and agendas and dreams and goals, but seek Christ and his kingdom first and foremost. Make us faithful disciples of him, hanging on his every word, following his every step. Make us faithful in trials, uh, sufferings, tribulations, whatever they might be. We pray that you would uh, teach us and train us through them. We pray that we would see that in all these things, not despite them or not, uh, not, not out of them, but in them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Help us to see your fatherly hand in these difficult providences that we go through. Don't leave us in them, but, but bring us through them, we pray. Keep us faithful. Uh, as we know that when we are weak, then we are strong because it's your strength in us, not ours.
Father, we pray that you continue to grow our church. We pray that you continue to uh, bring, uh, uh, bring us to a deeper and sweeter knowledge of who you are for us and of what it means for us to belong to you and to be Christians. We pray that we'd be more faithful in our discipleship. We pray we'd be more faithful in our witness and our outreach. That we would be a people that are filled with the hope of heaven and live accordingly so that the world sees and takes notice and wonders at the hope within us. We pray we'd always be ready to give an answer when we are asked. Make us bold for the sake of Christ and make us compassionate for those who do not know Christ and do not know the joy of your gospel and make us zealous for your glory. Father, we lift up to you the Fitzgerald's friend, Alexa. We pray that you grant her the wisdom she needs. You know her and you know her circumstances. Indeed, they're according to your eternal counsel. So give her wisdom, we pray, from your word, uh, from, from, from other Christians, and instruct her in what is best. We continue to pray for our dear sister and brother, Katie and Mike Duntley, and uh, their new little baby, Levi. We pray that you would strengthen this little boy and that you'd continue to give him health. Thank you for watching over the surgeon's hand this week. Uh, thank you for bringing him safely through that. We pray that you would continue to protect him and that he would always belong to you and never know a day when he did not know that you were his hope and his treasure. We pray that you give Katie and Mike wisdom through this, patience through this. Pray that their eyes would be fixed on Christ through this and that you would teach them through all this more about who you are as a faithful father. Father, we pray for the, uh, for the Bryants. We pray that they would be able to adopt McKenna. We pray you give them patience as this process unfolds. And we pray that you would work this out so that McKenna might be a part of their family and that she might also uh, be a part of our church family, a covenant child. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We know that you're a gracious and good God, that you do more than we ask or think. We have asked for much, uh, but we know that you will do much more. So we pray that our eyes would be on you, that you would work, continue to save, continue to grow us. All this we pray, resting in Christ, resting in who you are. Amen. As we prepare to hear God's word, we're going to sing again together. Our next hymn is number 690 in the hymnal. It's, I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's stand and sing together. I know that my Redeemer lives.
His presence makes me free indeed, and He will soon appear. He wills that I should holy be, who can withstand His will, the counsel of his grace in me, he surely shall fulfill. Jesus, I hang upon your word, I steadfastly believe you will return and claim me, Lord. And to yourself receive. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing through this series in the Shorter Catechism. Uh, just two more after this, and then we're going to be switching to take a break from it for a little while and consider some other uh, scripture together. But for now, we're on question 36 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'll read the question, then you can respond in unison with the answer. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are... Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Two scripture readings. Our Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 14. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. And they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, Save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child. Together a great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. 
and declare it in the aisles afar off and say, He who has scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Glorious prophecy there as the Lord speaks to his exiled people through Jeremiah, people who will be going into exile, and he tells them that he's going to bring them back. And of course, that's fulfilled in part uh, later on as they are brought back uh, in part to Jerusalem. But even more so, it's fulfilled in Christ as he comes and brings his people out of their spiritual exile into God's glorious grace and, and kingdom. And uh, we read there, Jeremiah, those wonderful words that God tells his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that's going to be what we see also here in Romans 8, our New Testament text. This is the sermon text as well. Romans 8. 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, this is the one to whom you will look, the one who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at your word. We cannot make ourselves so. We pray you would make us so. Humble, teachable, sitting at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, ready to hear. Give us the eyes of faith, we ask. Give us the posture of faith. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, we've considered some of the great blessings of our salvation, which are ours in Christ. Uh, We've looked at justification, adoption, and sanctification. These glorious things that are ours in Christ, not things that Christ just sort of purchases for us and then sends to us remotely from himself. These aren't like packages we get in the mail. But these are things that we get in Christ 
in union with Christ, because of our relationship with Christ, these things are ours. We're made right with God. We're made sons of God. We're made holy by the grace of God. So the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has worked through those things. And now they come to question 36. And in question 36, they summarize some of the other blessings that, that, that they say either uh, accompany these things or flow from these things. Um, which might make us think, well, this is kind of just a, this isn't quite as important as the big three, justification, adoption, sanctification. This is kind of a, a catch-all that they, oh, there's a few other blessings from Christ. We'll throw them in this question 36 as well. That's not at all the case. The things that the divines, the Westminster divines, uh, bring out for us here in question and answer 36 are sweet things. I mean, rich things. Right? Justification, adoption, sanctification are glorious things, but those things should lead to these things. What do we see here? We are promised in Christ. Assurance of God's love. Being really knowing in your heart that He loves me. They mention peace of conscience, right? Not one of my sins is held against me. Not one. And I'm perfectly at peace before God because of that. They mention uh, joy in the Holy Spirit, right? That our lives are, 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 are suffused with a real joy in all sorrows and tribulations, a real joy because we know Christ and He is ours and, and we are His forever. Um, increase of grace, they mention. Grace that comes to us day after day after day. An increasing grace so that we can stay faithful and persevere to the end. These are precious things, aren't they? These are not second-rate blessings. These are sweet things. Loved ones, the Lord does not simply want to justify you, adopt you, and sanctify you, right? Those objective realities. But He wants you to know it and, and to taste the sweetness of it. Remember it and enjoy it and live out of it. Remember who you are in Christ. Right? Our justification, our right standing with God doesn't depend on our assurance of it. But He wants us to have that assurance of it and taste the sweetness of it. We can forget this sometimes. Uh, we can, uh, we can um, treat these doctrines as things that become dry and, and they lose their flavor and their sweetness to us. But they are not. Uh, we can lose sight of how full and expansive and gracious salvation is. So we need to hear the words of Psalm 103. We started the service with these words. Uh, our call to worship from Psalm 103. Uh, one, one of the lines there is, forget not all his benefits. The psalmist doesn't mean rehearse his benefits, but remember them and enjoy them and savor them and live by them. That's what we're going to do, Lord willing, in these few minutes here together. We're going to look at some of these things. We're not going to take each item there that the Catechism lists out. Um, we, we could. We could look at a text that applies and teaches each one of those things. Uh, they're all in Scripture. But what I want to do instead is turn to a passage which, while it doesn't expound explicitly each of these things that question and answer 36 teaches, uh, it does carry the whole spirit of it. And that text, as we just read, is Romans 8. If um, Romans has been called the, the, the high peak of Scripture, the highest mountain in all of Scripture, and if that's the case, I think perhaps Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of, of that mountain, the highest peak on that mountain. Uh, it's a glorious chapter. It, 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 Paul has been laying out in Romans 8 all the wonderful privileges that are ours in Christ and by the Spirit of Christ. Um, and then 
as he comes to a conclusion of the chapter in verse 31, he's caught up in the greatness of God in all these things, the glory of all these things. He says, what shall we say to these things? He's astounded at what God has done. And then he unpacks them a little more for us. Four things we're going to look over in these verses. Four things that teach us about who we are in Christ. Number one, no opposition. Verse 31, no opposition. Verse 31 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? So, if you're in Christ, this is true of you. God is for you, so who can be against you? Right? Every purpose God has for you is a good purpose. And it's a sovereign purpose. It's, it's being worked out according to His power, which knows no limits. And the, the favor He's placed on you, the blessing that He's placed on you cannot change. He's for you. This is the language of the covenant. Right? God is my God, and He's with me to bless me and protect me. He's my refuge. He's, he, he's the one who fights on behalf of, of me. The implication of the fact that God is with us and for us is that no one can stand against us. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a wonderful illustration of this in the Old Testament. We see um, the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. Right, Elisha's there, he's in this city, and uh, the Syrian army comes against the city. It's a, it's a big army, and it's a small city. They surround it, and uh, Elisha, uh, um, uh, Elisha's servant, rather, feels like it's a hopeless situation. He wakes up in the morning, he sees the Syrian army surrounding him, and he's terrified, and he says to his master, Elisha, he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Of course, God opens his eyes and uh, he sees this host of angel armies around him. God is for him. God is with him. Who can be against him? Not even an army can cause God's people uh, to, can cause any harm to come against them that God does not intend. We see this throughout the Old Testament, right? This, this is what's so wonderful about the faith of the Old Testament saints that we see. We see it in Moses standing up to Pharaoh. God is with him. He'll stand up against the mightiest man in the earth. Or, or, or Joshua as he leads the people against Jericho. Or David against Goliath. God is with me and God is for me and God fights for me. There's no opposition. No weapon fashioned against me that can do any harm to me apart from God's holy, powerful will. It's not that there's nothing that is against us, right? Actually, the opposite's true. Everything sometimes, it seems like, is against us. Um, our sinful uh, habits are against us. The powers of uh, darkness are against us. The devil is against us. The world and the system of unbelief in the world is against us. And it looks a lot stronger than we are. It is a lot stronger than we are, isn't it? And think of Paul and how it would have looked to him as he writes these words. Look at the forces that he would have seen opposing Christ and opposing the church in his day. If we think the church is on the decline, and right, how, how, what would he think of, of, of the church today? Seeing, seeing the thousands and millions of Christians when he did not see that. So, loved ones, think, think, right, Paul is looking here and he sees, he sees the might of Rome. Or he sees the ruling classes of Jerusalem uh, and they seem stronger than this fledgling church, this fragile church. But he knows, God's with me, God's for me, 
no opposition against me. That can stand. Um, Sometimes, loved ones, after we go through a difficult um, providence, it can feel we we can be wary of God. Worried. What's he going to do next? What's he going to pull out from under me next? What prop is he going to pull away? But, loved ones, that should not be our sense of his love for us, right? Because he says uh, he is for us. He's not against you. Not in any providence that comes up. Not in any circumstances that come up. He's not against you if you're in Christ. In your fight against indwelling sin, He's for you. In your fight against temptation, He's for you. No one can challenge Him. No one can best Him. That's the first thing Paul tells us. Precious truth. If you're in Christ, there's no opposition that can contend with you. Because God is for you. Second thing he draws out for us here is in verse 32. He says that there's no deprivation for those who are in Christ. No deprivation. We are not deprived of anything that is good for us. Verse 32 is just one of the, one of the sweetest promises in the Scriptures. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you know the? Do you understand the logic there that Paul is laying out? He's, it can be a little surprising. He, he's shown us, right? He's saying God has shown you the greatest possible generosity. He's given you the greatest gift possible. And sometimes, if you receive a gift from someone, uh, you're afraid to ask for something more. Well, they've already given me so much. How can I? How can I ask for more? Paul's saying that's not how God's grace works, right? He gives a gift. He gives the greatest possible gift. Of course, he'll give you everything else with it. It's like a, like a father. And he gets his son a really nice car for his 18th birthday. All right, this really, really nice car. And he loves his son. He's going to throw in the air fresheners. And he's going to throw in the, the, the floor mats. He's, all the accessories. Right? He, he wants this gift to be a sweet gift and, a, and, a, and just an, an overwhelmingly good gift for his son. He's not going to withhold these other small things if he's willing to, to splurge on this, uh, on, on this car for his son. And Paul is saying, right, God's fundamental attitude towards us is a gracious one and an and a overwhelmingly gracious one, a superabundantly gracious one. Is that how you think about the Lord? Or do you think like this, God saved me by His grace in Christ, but I'm not sure how happy He was to do it. I'm not sure I can ask Him for more. We can get suspicious sometimes in our thoughts towards God. Is He really doing what's best for me? Is He giving me everything that He could give me? Maybe there's something He's holding back, something I need to earn rather than receive by His gracious hand. And to think about God that way, dear ones, is to completely misunderstand the whole principle in which He operates towards you. It's grace. It's all grace. And it's super abundant grace. He's given us Jesus Christ, His Son, And He gave us His Son, not because we were somehow deserving of that gift. We were sinners in rebellion against Him. Didn't deserve any of it, and He gave us Christ. Is He going to withhold anything good from us now? He will spare no expense for you. He has spared no expense for you. He won't start doing so. He will hold no good thing back from you. Not because it's what you deserve, quite the opposite, but because that's who He is. He's that gracious. 
Third thing that's true of the Christian. No condemnation. Verses 33 to 34. We've seen no opposition. We've seen no deprivation. Now no condemnation. Verses 33 and 34. This is a big one, isn't it? Paul started the chapter the same way. Uh, He started by saying in verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now as he comes to the end of the chapter, he brings that truth again to our hearts. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 33, he starts with a question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's the language of the courtroom. Picture a courtroom scene. Paul's saying, who's going to press charges against God's elect? You might think, well, a lot of people, right? Lots of people could. Satan could do that. He, he, he's, he's, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's a master prosecutor. And he knows the details of what I've done. He knows my crimes against God. He's got real evidence of it, too. He, he, actually, he, actually, he has a rock-solid case. He could, right, press these charges against me. And he's going to, isn't he? We could think... There are other people. They could press charges too. People I've sinned against. And yes, they're right. I've sinned against them. And they have charges they could press against me. They could, they could do the same thing. And then there's my own heart. And I know not all my sins. I know, I know enough of it to know that I can press charges against myself. That, you know, I, I've know, I, I know the other idols I've worshipped instead of the Lord. I know the other things I've trusted. The other things I've given my heart to in love besides Him and instead of Him. I know my pride and my stubborn insistence in my own way. I know I've broken every single one of his commandments. Paul, lots of things, lots of people could press charges. What does Paul say? What does God say? He says, it's God who justifies. None of this matters, does it? Because what's the judge think? What's the judge going to say? He's going to say, you're justified. I justify Right, if God justifies, if he says you're righteous, who's anyone to tell him otherwise? He has given the last word on me, and it's justified. And nothing can change that, and no charge that the devil brings against me, or others bring against me, or my own heart brings against me, can stick. Because the judge won't hear it. He says, no, he's justified. Christ's blood paid for that. He's righteousness, Christ's righteousness has clothed him. This point is so crucial for us. Paul goes on, he restates it in verse 34. He says, who is to condemn? Very similar language. And again, we might be tempted to answer, well, Paul, lots of people could condemn, uh, right? Most of all, my own heart, but, but uh, no one has the final say on this. Again, right, the verdict comes from the judge. I don't have the authority to condemn myself. God has justified He says no condemnation. No one else can can change that verdict. At this point, it's almost as though Paul can see us shaking our heads in disbelief at these things. How can a sinner like me be so freely forgiven and so completely justified? So Paul points us to the grounds of all this. He points us to Christ. He points us to Christ's death, first of all. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In Christ's death, my... Sin's price has been paid. So I've got no debt left to pay for my sin. Christ paid it all. It's not just that I'm not condemned, but really we see here in the death of Christ, there is no condemnation for me. 
It's not simply that no, no charge sticks, but, uh, but that there, there is no charge against me whatsoever anymore. I, I cannot be condemned because Christ was condemned for me. There is no longer any possibility of condemnation for the Christian. Paul says, and there's more. More than that, he says, Christ Jesus not only died, he was raised. We touched on this this morning, right? Jesus' resurrection shows he himself is justified before God. He rises from the dead, and that's, the, that's God's verdict on Jesus, saying he's innocent and he's righteous, and he raises him from the dead. So if you're trusting in Christ, aren't you justified also in him? Right? If you're united to Christ, his resurrection is his justification, his resurrection is my justification as well. So if Jesus is alive, then I am justified if I'm trusting in him. There are no exceptions to this. You cannot be condemned. Paul is still not done. Not only is Christ the one who died for you, not only is Christ the one who was raised from the dead for you, is also, he says, Christ is the one who ascended to the right hand of God in heaven for you. What's he, what's he doing there? He's praying for his people. Wesley's hymn puts it well. He says, it says this, Christ ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood was shed for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Right? That's what Christ is doing now. He's at the Father's right hand and he is praying for you. What's he praying? He's praying that everything he accomplished for you would be applied to you. That everything that He secured for you by His saving work, the Spirit would take that and apply that to you and work it out in your life. Right? He worked our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, and all the rest of it. And now He's praying, Lord, pour out Your Spirit on My people that they might enjoy the riches of these things. That You would rest in the love of God and know these things. That You'd persevere in Your faith. That You would keep on in, in, in faithfulness to Him that you wouldn't give in to sin? How do you think God receives those prayers? Christ is praying for you. This is his constant work. How does God hear that? Do you think there's a single one of those words of our Lord Jesus Christ to his Father on our behalf that the Father says no to? Do you think there's a single prayer that Christ utters on your behalf that the Father shuts his ears to. Absolutely not. Right? If Christ prays for us, God absolutely hears and says yes and answers that prayer. And so, loved ones, this is what it means to be a Christian, Paul is telling us. Your whole life is an answer to the prayers of Jesus Christ for you. Your whole life is an answer to the prayers that Jesus Christ, your great high priest, is offering up for you. Is that how you see your life? So there's no one who can condemn because Christ has secured our salvation. He's justified us forever. He's praying for us. He's interceding for us forever. We'll persevere because of all this. But there's one more thing Paul wants to draw out. That's our final heading. No separation. No separation. Verses 35 to 39. What's the goal of the gospel? What's this all about? All this, all this that we've been talking about, this justification, 
this saving work of Christ. If the Father plans it, Jesus accomplishes it, Spirit applies it, why? What's, what's it all aimed at? Justification isn't the end goal. Right? It's a means to an end. A glorious thing, but it's not the end itself. Right? To be counted righteous is, is a wonderful thing, but what's the goal of that? It's to have God, for Him to have us. Right? That covenant communion, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, that's the goal of all Scripture, that we'd never be separated from the love of God in Christ. So that's where Paul goes as he closes out this glorious passage here in Romans 8. He goes to the goal that we'd never be separated from God's love. Loved ones, uh, do you know that love of God for you? Paul already told us in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We already have this in us if we are trusting in Christ. There's nothing as precious as the love of God. There's nothing as sweet and as good and as precious and as worth everything as His love. Right? What's His love like? What's He like? You know, the Catechism answer, what's God? God's a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Therefore, everything that God is, He is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. What's the love of God like for you? It's an infinite love. It's an eternal love. No start date, no end date. It's an unchangeable love. Nothing can change it. Nothing can call it into question. No action on your part can take that away from you. This is His love for us, which sought us out when we were still in our sins, when we were, when we were, uh, when we were rebels and haters of God. This love of His sought us out, brought us to Himself, wooed us to Himself, won our hearts to Himself. And that same love He promises is going to carry us all the way to glory, where we are going to enjoy Him in His love, love of the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. This is what is yours in Christ. It's so precious. But Paul knows that um, in the Christian life, we're going to wonder if there are things that can separate us from this. Right? This is a glorious thing, this love of God for us. But, but we, can, we can look around and we can see things and wonder, are there things that can separate us from this love of God for us? Right? There are things that can separate us from the love of other people for us. Things that can they cut us off from a husband or a wife's love. Or things that can separate us from a parent's love. What about God? The obvious answer, the answer we all know is, well, of course, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, and that's what Paul says. But then, then he takes a detour in the argument to drive the question home to us and to show us all the things that might try to separate us from the love of God in Christ. He's showing us that he's not being naive about this, that he's being realistic about what it is to be a Christian and to suffer, and that there are many things that will try to separate us from the love of God in Christ. He lists seven things, of course, seven, number of completion, uh, a full-orbed sense of all these things that might try to separate us from God's love. He starts in verse 35, tribulation, he says, right? Suffering, affliction, he mentions. Um, He mentions uh, uh, distress, right? Distress could be various things. It could be something like losing a job, getting uh, getting a severe sickness, uh, losing a loved one, being grieved by that, right? Things that bring anxiety, worry, fear. All these things, these circumstances, and we know them, right? You know them. Um, these things that can say, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. 
His love can't really protect you. These things that threaten us. And then he mentions persecution. Um, the isolation we face because of being Christians for what we believe or how we act. Um, he mentions uh, that, that persecution includes, right, you follow Christ as a disciple should follow Christ and you're mocked for it. Persecution includes more severe things, right? You're losing your standing in society, uh, facing, facing um, uh, prison even in some places or even death. Right? These things can say, does God really love me? Make us question that. They'll try to separate us from God's love. And then Paul turns and he mentions some other things that will try. He mentions famine, nakedness. Right? These, you could go hungry. You could be poor. You could lose everything you've got. Your house could burn down. Will that separate you from God's love? Then he goes on. What about, uh, what about uh, danger, peril, right? uh, uh, natural disasters perhaps? Uh, situations where we feel like we have no control of what's going on and we're scared. Um, and then finally he comes to the end of this list and he lists the, the, the greatest threat of all, the sword, death itself, dying for Christ. Right? What, what if I have to face that? Will that separate me from Christ's love? Paul is saying, look, to be a Christian might mean all these things. It's definitely going to mean some of these things. It might mean all these things. And he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul's saying, this is the normal Christian experience. All these things. We should expect this as Christians. We don't get a free pass on these things. So will it separate us from God's love? It might try. And it might seem to. It might feel like it breaks us at times. It might even kill us. But does it separate us from God's love? It might feel like it does, but does that mean it did? No, it doesn't. Right? His love for me is much stronger than my sense of His love for me. It doesn't depend on your feeling of His love for you, loved ones. Right? I love my children. But when I'm disciplining them, I'm not sure how strong a sense they have of my love. I, I, I know I love them in that moment. I love them just as much as I do when I'm playing with them or, 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 or reading to them before bedtime. Right? And, and in those moments, yeah, they sense it. When I'm disciplining them, they don't. But the love that I have for them doesn't change from one moment to the other. And that's the way it is with the Lord, only so much more. Right? My sense of His love doesn't depend. Uh, his love for me, I mean, doesn't depend on my sense of it. So Paul writes, verse 37, he says, in all these things, all, right, all these things he's just mentioned, the, the, the suffering, tribulation, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, sword, all of it, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's just a mind-blowing thing. In all these things, he says, in all these things, in all this hardship, pain, and suffering that we go through in this life, right, when I'm, when I'm weeping over the loss of a loved one, I'm more than a conqueror? When I'm, when I'm feeling that my life is mundane, hard, disappointing, and lonely, I'm more than a conqueror? What do you mean, Paul? Right? When I'm being mocked for living the way Jesus has called me to live, I'm more than a conqueror in that? Right? It doesn't say in spite of these things. It's in these things. That when we feel weak, even broken by His providence, it's in these things 
The Greek has it, we are, we are super conquerors. That's what the word is. Through him who loves us. The sense of the word is this. In all these things, we are winning a glorious victory through him who loves us. Why is that? How can that be? Well, we're walking in Christ's footsteps, aren't we? And uh, right, we're following the pattern he gave us, and this is the Christian life. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's God's promise. When I'm suffering, I'm winning a glorious victory. Because it's confirming to me God's love for me, rather than separating me from it. Loved ones, everything, every providence of your life, God has designed to drive you deeper into an experience of his, of his love. And so the things that even they feel like they're, they're breaking us are the marks of our victory in Christ. Paul says there's nothing, nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, no angel, no demon, no good thing, no bad thing, nothing that can separate us from his love. Loved ones, this is what is yours in Christ. Paul describes this love for us in verse 39 as God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean that it's that God loves us because of Christ, but that he loves those who are in Christ this way. Where else can you find a love like this? Other things tempt us. They, they, they say, well, you'll find it here, you'll find it here, and this person or that person or this thing, that thing, that experience. But there's no one who loves you like the Lord does. And no, uh, no, no, no sweetness of love that you can experience anywhere else apart from him. So, loved ones, in closing, let me encourage you. Remember what's yours in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. The riches of this full salvation that he's given us. And live your life in light of these things. Right? No opposition, no deprivation, no condemnation, no separation. Rest in those things. And who Christ is for you in all these ways. And that even as he saved you in his everlasting love, he'll bring you to glory in his everlasting love. So loved ones, turn your hearts again to Christ. Taste the delights of what he's done for you in the gospel. Remember them. Forget not all his benefits. And savor them. And live by them. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in what you've done. We are astounded at what you've done for sinners. Out of your sheer grace. For Christ's sake. Help us to live by these things. Our hearts are so quick to wander. We pray that you would bind us more closely to Christ by your grace. And help us to live as we are. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Closing hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Number 535. We'll stand and sing number 535. Oh, the...
deep, deep love of Jesus, vast unmeasured, boundless free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. How he watches o'er his loved ones died to call them all his own. How for them he interceded, watcheth for them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best, tis an ocean vast of blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to Thee. Amen. Hear God's good word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.